The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. What's up, church? How are we doing today? Hey, uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. We got to hit the ground running because I went way too long last service. I got to figure out a way to speed this up. So uh, Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. And while you're doing that, I have a couple of announcements. Um, Tuesday morning worship, our last one for this particular season, is coming up this Tuesday, March 13th at 6.30 a.m. at The Hub. That's our office little building right here, as you'll see it as you're coming out. Um, So that's uh, Tuesday at 6.30. Also, flip side of 50 today is having a Dutch lunch at Original Roadhouse at 1215 after this service. That's Original Roadhouse, not Texas Roadhouse, right? So that's the one over by Mart Roadhouse over there, right? Okay, there you go. Original Roadhouse at 1215. Um, And then a couple other things real quick. Uh, There's no shepherding elder meeting today. If you didn't get that email, just letting you guys know on that one. And then the last thing is... So I've been gone uh, for a couple of weeks. Last week I was gone because we just had this awesome thing. So we had man camp um, that went through last weekend, which by the way was phenomenal. I, I, when they get the video up for those teachings and stuff, we'll, we'll let you guys know that weren't able to come. But man, it was an incredible, incredible weekend. Amen, guys that went? Yeah? That's guys. They're all, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that was good, really. Actually, that means like, yes, in church guy speak. So um, anyway, that was amazing. And then um, a few of us went down to Reno on Sunday, and we were there from Sunday through Wednesday um, for the Acts 29 U.S. West conference that goes on uh, every year. It's, it's the big conference the West Coast Network of Acts 29 puts on. Amazing time, uh, amazing worship, amazing teachers. It was awesome. And then we actually had the opportunity, both myself and Pastor Brent um, here also got to teach workshops this year, which was a great opportunity for us as a church to be part and serve the network in that way. And we were kind of talking and realized that we don't do a good enough job of putting out in front of you um, what we're a part of through Acts 29. Um, there, it's just incredible the stuff that's going on. I'm telling you guys, that's like, I, I don't think there's a healthier network out there. Acts 29 is not, um, some of you are like looking in your Bibles right now. There's no 29. It stops at 28. Um, the reason is, is because the book of Acts is the story uh, of God rescuing the world from sin and from death through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, but brought through the planting of churches. And so Acts 29 is, is named that way because the idea is this is the continuing work of what you see in the book of Acts in general. Um, so it's, it's just a network of churches all partnered together um, because we believe the best means of getting the gospel out there and the means that God has ordained is through the planting of churches. And while we were there, um, this, there was a lot we talked about this time in terms of um, diversity and, and really just looking at the future of church planning in America and globally. Um, the network's now over 700 churches. We're all over the world right now. Um, but our network has historically been mostly, well, you'll hear about this in the video, but we're kind of like mostly white suburban, even hipsters. That's most of Acts 29 historically. But here's the actual, despite what we even see in our particular culture, um, here's the, uh, and I mean local culture, here, here's the statistics that really surprised me to find out. Uh, right now, one in two people in the U.S. West District that we're a part of on the West Coast, one in two people under the age of 18 right now are not Caucasian, are not white. 40% of millennials age 18 to 35 are not white. Uh, by 2042, 50% of the population of the U.S. will not be white. 
By 2055, the U.S. will no longer have an ethnic majority. 20% of marriages right now are interracial, and yet 86% of churches are segregated by race and by class in the United States which is stunning to look at. And so Acts 29, what the leaders there were trying to do is like, look, if we see that this is the demographic of the world that we're a part of right now, how do we get ahead of that to make sure that we have a voice into these communities um, to be able to raise up indigenous leaders, indigenous church planners, and things such as that. And so, so Acts 29 kind of unrolled to us. Um, they're referring, it to, referring to it as a diversity initiative to really want to start training up uh, minority, uh, ethnic minorities uh, to be able to go and plant churches in some really difficult places that right now in our culture and all around, especially on the West Coast, is completely devoid of gospel preaching churches, really in places that probably need it the most. And so they made a video here that's kind of telling the story of some of that. I want to show you guys that real quick, and then we'll pray for them and we'll dive into the work. Can you guys uh, roll that for us? Acts 29 is a diverse global family of church planting churches. Over the past years, we have made great strides in becoming more and more diverse, but there is still so much work to be done. One of our core values is to be a radically diverse and global community. This year, we are going to strengthen and reinforce this value as well as pursuing greater diversity at all levels in what we're calling the Diversity Initiative. Acts 29 has been perceived, especially in the US, as a predominantly white, suburban, even hipster church planning movement. And we need to address this. Sadly, we live in a broken world where inequality runs rampant and the church is not immune from this at all. In my 20 years of urban ministry, I've clearly seen this. The pipelines are simply not there. This means there are unnecessary and often overwhelming obstacles to planting. It means many minority groups are not being reached. It means minorities do not have a voice at the table. It means we are not displaying God's glory in all of its beautiful diversity. We pull up in impoverished areas, um, crime-ridden areas, uh, where there aren't many resources. Uh, it's very difficult for us to, to plant the kind of churches that we desire to plant um, in the cities where we plant them. To my knowledge, I am the only Indian American lead planter in Acts 29. And so one of the things I'm really excited about is for that to change. It's a, it's a really a gospel thing when you see uh, people who have much or people who've had a strong voice to be able to speak on behalf of people who don't have a voice or who have had less of a voice. One of the big things is the notion of us can creating contextualized resources to help us deal with the urban folk religions that have developed in the inner city. This initiative will focus on two things, strengthening and recruiting. I'm going to be coming alongside our existing minority planners and teams to encourage them in their work of church planning. We will also actively seek diversity at a leadership and staff level. By God's grace, the leadership of Acts 29 as a global entity will be at least 50% non-white by the end of the year. We are going to host two minority summits to engage, listen to, and envision potential planners from minority groups, strengthening existing connections and building new ones. 
We will be producing innovative and practical content to support minority planners. We are going to develop coaching relationships to strengthen young existing urban churches, and we are going to launch cohorts to support potential planters through assessment and into church planting. We want to create clear pipelines for planters, for minority groups to be identified, developed, supported, and deployed for the glory of God. By God's grace, over the coming years, we will see healthy churches planted and nurtured all over the world in all cultures and contexts, urban and suburban and rural, black and white, rich and poor, African and American, Asian and Australasian, European and South American, churches that proclaim the glory of Christ to a lost world. Amen for that, yeah? Man, I'm just so proud of our network, like to, to be able to say, man, this is what the world looks like. We, we heard stories and testimonies. There was, there's a church that uh, we're, we're hoping to get some more videos of the different individual church plants to be able to present to you guys. So you can be praying for some of the churches that we financially support. Um, but we heard one story while we were there. There's a church down in L.A., like right down in kind of the whole gangbang area down there. And he was just telling about how just a couple of weeks ago, um, a woman whose father had OD'd on drugs watched as her father's drug dealer got baptized in their church right there. Just like incredible things that are taking place in some of these areas. And so we're just really excited um, and just want to encourage you to join with us in praying for the Leadership Acts 29 as we try to really become more and more, you know, we think of missions as like Africa, but it's not like that anymore. You know, there, it's really not like that right now. The, the number one secular continent in the entire world right now is actually Europe. And America is kind of following some of that same trajectory in a lot of different ways. Um, so I love the initiatives that they're putting together to raise up indigenous church planters, even within our own midst, to go and plant churches successfully that spread the gospel in places that really don't have gospel churches and need them more than anyone. So let's, let's just pray for them real quick, and we'll pray for our service and open up the word. Um, Father, we just uh, lift up, Lord, our, our network. We lift up, Lord, um, all the gospel work that you're doing across our country and across our world. It's so easy right now, Lord, for us to get um, bogged down by the negative news and feel like, uh, um, like literally things are going to hell. But the reality is, is your gospel wins. We know this to be true. In the end, you win and you're doing amazing things. And so we pray, God, for the many churches that even right now on our West Coast are opening up the word and worshiping you and studying you right now. I pray, God, that your hand would be upon them, that you would show them and us grace, that we might continue to be faithful to your word, continue to raise more leaders and plant more churches and spread your gospel, um, Lord, efficiently and effectively throughout the world. May you empower the work uh, that we are so privileged to be a part of. And Lord, this morning, as we open up this text, this is a, a tough one. And so God, I pray that you would help us to understand um, what you are doing, what you're calling us to do, how we respond to this. I pray, Lord, against any notion where we might want to craft things that we don't like to be more palatable to our own taste. And I pray, God, that you would, by your spirit, teach us and build our faith and trust in you, even in things that are difficult for us. May, Lord, you speak to us this morning. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. Now, God's people said, 
Amen. Well, I'm just going to dive right in this morning. Like I said, normally we'd all stand and read the word and do all that, but we're, we're, we're kind of pushing it. I made the bad choice of showing a video on communion Sunday. It's a busy week. So let's just jump in, shall we? And let me give you a warning. This, you're not going to like this. Just in advance. And I know that because I don't either. I have literally spent the last couple of days writing this sermon and working through studying this text, trying to figure out a way to make this more palatable to you. I really have. I just felt like, man, I, I've been gone for two weeks. I'm going to come back and teach. I don't want to come back in my first week back after two weeks gone. Be like I'm taking something and like smacking people over the head with a two by four. Except for the idea or the, the reality that in this text, Jesus is kind of smacking people over the head with a two by four. And so we're going to be honest to this text. We're just going to teach it as is. Because first of all, we don't want to be the type of people and we will not be the type of church that changes texts or skips over them because we don't like them and then crafts them into something that we like better. That's idolatry. The reason that's idolatry is what you're doing is you're crafting and changing the will and the plan and the idea of God into someone you like a little bit better, which ultimately is actually us. That's us changing God into being like us instead of us allowing God's word to change us to be more like him, which is kind of how it's supposed to go. So we're going to refuse to do that. We won't be Lord over the text. We'll let the text be Lord over us. And we want to trust that God is doing something good, even in things that are difficult. And the honest truth is, number one, for me to change this or soften it or any of that kind of stuff, it's not going to ultimately serve you because God's word is good for you. He's wooing you to better. Always he's wooing you to better. But also, and this may be slightly selfish in some of your eyes, I don't know if you guys know this, but teachers of the word when we get to heaven at a certain point we'll be coming up with you guys you know all in line and then we have to like slide over here to this other line as we come in I don't know if you know about that where we are accountable for the things that we teach and we're held accountable for the role that we were in and I just honestly I don't want to get there and have Jesus standing before me and go dude I wrote it down it was really clear but you were a coward and you were more concerned with people liking you than you were telling them the truth about me. And we don't want them to do with that. Amen, church? So this is going to be what it is. Y'all ready? You got your big boy pants on? They're cushy seats. We'll be okay. Let's do this. Verse 49. So John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, we're going to break the text up today into three different sections. And if you wanted little subheadings for them, you could say the first section is for us. The second section is about them. The third section is about me. I don't mean me, just Jeff. I mean, everybody say me. That me. That's the one I'm talking about. So us, them, me. That's what we're looking at. So us. Here we have John and he says, master, we saw people calling out demons, casting out demons, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Now, there's a couple of things to notice in this that are really important. One of them is when he says that I was tried to stop them, there's an imperfect tense in that, which would seem to indicate that this was John's normal mode of operation. As if he's saying, hey, Jesus, as per usual, when I saw someone who was doing something but not following us, I told them to stop. 
This is something he's done habitually, you might say. But the second thing that's even worse about that is notice what he says. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, speaking to Jesus, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with who? Us. Us. That seems presumptuous, doesn't it? I mean, by the way, he's stopping someone from casting out demons. What did the disciples just fail at doing like two paragraphs previously? They were trying to cast out demons and couldn't. And now here's John going, well, they weren't following us. Much better it would have been if he were saying, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, Jesus, but he doesn't actually follow you. He was just using your name. So I told him to stop. Oh, good on you then. It's not what he says. He was doing this in your name, but he doesn't follow us. See, John, you have to remember, he's part of the inner circle. And we're going to see that there are, what, some 70 disciples you're going to see pretty soon. But then within that circle, there's 12. The inner 12, the disciples, the ones that we talk about, like with a capital D, the disciples. Then there's the three. Remember in the story of the Mount Transfiguration, the three guys that go up the hill? Um, those three, Peter, James, and John, these are the closest ones to Jesus. They're the ones that he takes into access in different places. I love what Chris Brown, though, says down at North Coast in San Diego. He goes, I think most likely, especially considering that Peter was in that group, it's not that those three are the best. It's that those are the three he knew he couldn't leave at camp unattended. So he was like, man, if I leave those guys by themselves, they're going to be burning stuff down there. Who knows what they'll do? So I'll just take Oh, come on, come with me. Maybe that's the case, maybe not. But this much is for sure. John seems to have gotten super entitled all of a sudden. And he's like, well, they weren't following us. They were casting out demons. Yeah, we failed on that. That's what happens when you get elite, by the way. You start looking over your own shortcomings and your own failures and your own struggles. And you just focus on everything that everybody else is doing. Watch for that. But they took this call to follow Jesus to serve, to follow the Jesus who's going to die. And now it's about privilege and it's about status and it's about, well, they're, they're not on our team. So we said, hey, this is our market. You go get your own thing. We got this all copyrighted and trademarked. Get out of here. And so Jesus rebukes them. Now, this is a normal question with regards to religion and especially Christianity. Who's in? Who's with us? Who's in, who's out? Jesus says, if he's not against you, he's for you. Okay, so who's for us? Who's, who's the people that are on our team? This is even uh, shows up in the scriptures. Numbers 11, you have the spirit of God seems to be on these two guys, but there's 70 elders that are like, hey, they're not one of the 70. I'm not sure this can be real. All the way into even the New Testament text where they're arguing at times over how to discern who is right with their doctrine, who's a false teacher, and all of these kinds of things. So how do we decide that? Well, one thing to notice for sure is the founder of our faith does tend to be a lot broader minded than we do. He just does. Our temptation is usually if you don't believe every single thing I believe and you don't do everything the way that I think you should do it and you don't have everything fit into exactly what I like and exactly what I'm comfortable with, then you're not part of us and you're wrong and we're right. 
And somehow after thousands of years of Christianity and following God and all this stuff, this one church in Medford, Oregon that meets in a gym has figured out exactly how everything is supposed to go and everyone else is wrong. That tends to be the way a lot of people think in our kind of human fallen nature. And we need to be a little, what's more important is that we're actually talking about Jesus, not as much who is the one talking about Jesus for one thing. And for another thing, we would be better off to be more exact in our Christology, like our understanding of who Jesus is, and way less picky about our ecclesiology or how we do church or how we do ministry or how we do these things. You, just you be faithful would be great advice for us as a church. But that being said, we still have to sort some stuff out sometimes though, right? Because some people aren't. Some people are against us. So how do you draw that line? How do you figure that out? Who's for us and who's not and who we can partner with and who we can't and where we should draw lines and all that kind of stuff. Like if we don't want to be judgmental, but we want to stand for truth, how do you figure that out? Well, there's a model that Gary Brashears, he's the head of theology at Western Seminary, um, has put together that, that we've kind of adopted here at Heritage that for us is just a really helpful tool to be able to think through those sort of things and to be able to understand maybe what a healthy position for us as a church should be with regards to that and to figuring out where those lines get drawn. And Gary breaks all of this stuff down according to four different categories. He has the things that you die for, things you divide over, things you debate over, or things you just decide on. So let me give you an example. So the first one, things that you die for. Things that you die for are the things that if you were to abandon this, you have now left the Christian faith. So things like the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. Big deal. You die on that hill. Or uh, inspiration of scripture or salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Those are things that are so central to the core of the gospel that to abandon them and remove them means you're no longer even within the realms of Christianity anymore. So we will die for those. If people divide with us over it, so be it. We cannot but believe and hold to these things. Those are the things that you die for. The next category are things that you divide for. Not outside the faith, necessarily, but issues so central to the life and practice of the church that we can't really coexist in partnership. So this would be things like, maybe they're still Christian, most likely, probably, hopefully, but this issue that they have a certain belief in is so different from what we believe in this that energies would just be wasted, that we would be banging heads against one each other. It's just things that we, we just can't partner together in this way. So this might be things about sexuality or gender issues or the way and beliefs and practices of the Holy Spirit or things to that regard. Might still be Christian, hope they're still Christian, but like, man, we're, we're not going to do a joint church service on this because this would, this would be antithetical to our mission and to what God has us teach in our flock. It would send a confusing message to the community. We just, I'm sorry, we just can't go there. The third thing are things that we debate for. So these are things that while we might disagree about these different things, we can still maintain brotherhood and unity of the spirit and worship together. We could have coffee and argue these things tooth and nail. We could even get heated at times, but we can repent to one another. We can love one another. We can worship side by side to one another while still holding these differences of beliefs. 
So some of the things that we would say here would be with regards to maybe your model of salvation, not how you're saved, but how the intricacies of it work out. What I'm really speaking about is whether Calvinism or Arminianism. Man, we can sit and have coffee and debate that all day. We can dig into the scriptures and people have been fighting that stuff for a thousand years. But at the end of the day, we're still brothers and sisters. No matter how we got saved, whether God called us or whether God predestined us or whether we chose and responded to the invitation, we are still saved. We are still brothers and sisters in Christ. And we better be able to worship to one another or together with one another to Jesus under that. I would also include things like eschatological beliefs. Like, is there a rapture? When will Jesus come back? What about the tribulation? Is there a millennium? How do all those things work out? Lots of different beliefs in there and we can debate them. We might even have strong opinions about them, but we got to be able to worship alongside a brother in a situation like that. And then the last category is this, things that you decide for. These are just total open-handed issues that look, just decide, just whatever. Like I might have mine. These might be personal convictions. These might be whatever the case may be. And I'll hold to mine. I'm going to live to mine and you do the same. But come on, there's so many more important things that we could be talking about. There's such a much more important mission of God that we really shouldn't be wasting a whole lot of time arguing about some of these kind of things. So these might be things like, um, what Bible translation do you read from? Or can Christians watch movies or have wine with dinner or whatever the case may be, man, just go with God on that. We'll fight about other things, but we're not going to waste time arguing over opinions or things of that nature. Now, so how does this work when you have a scale like that? Here's how this works. First of all, recognize divisive people are people that take low level issues like decide fors and they raise them to divide for status. So I'll give you an example. There was a time I was teaching a couple of years ago and we did a sermon and we did an altar call. We did the whole thing at the end of the service. And as I got down, this guy like pops up out of his seat and blitzes to the front. I mean, I'm barely saying amen. He's already here wanting to talk to me. And he jumped all over me because I was teaching out of the English standard version of the Bible instead of the King James version. And I'm just like, dude, really? (laughs) You're going to come and fight with me. Like he's lecturing me and scolding me and telling me that I'm leading the church in the wrong direction. I'm just like, okay, okay, okay. Look, God bless you, man. But that's an issue that you're taking that we look at as like, look, it's not that big a deal. Like what version of the Bible should I read? Uh, The one that you'll read. Okay. So NIV, new living translation, the message, whatever, like understand what you have and use it appropriately. Don't use a word study and read that, do that out of the message or something. That's a whole nother thing for another day. Theology nerd, I can feel rising in me right now. I'm going to push it back down and we'll just keep going. But here's this guy that's taking a low level thing like that. And after the proclamation of the gospel and talking about all these other things, he's going to come up to me and fight about what version of the Bible I read as if Jesus actually had a King James version when he was walking around, which he didn't, by the way. So I'm just like, we're just not going to go there, man. We're just not She's not going to deal with some of those kind of things. And divisive people tend to be those that take opinion or low-level issues and they raise them to areas that force division when they really shouldn't. But on the other end, false teachers are those who take the die-for issues and push them down into areas where they're suddenly negotiable. Like, you know, this whole Jesus is the only way to heaven is making a lot of people mad. And we'd have a whole lot more people in our churches if we were a lot more open-minded to that. So we're not going to push on this whole Jesus stuff. We'll just talk about hope and life and all that kind of stuff. 
absolutely not, man. Not here. We're not partnering with that. And we will die on that hill. And if that means that people don't like heritage, so be it. Because we have to be faithful to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only way to salvation. So to bail on Christianity for that, I'm sorry. We're not trying to fight with you. We're trying to save you. That's why we stand here. And so the goal is this. You want the black and white scriptural, this is clear from God in his word. You want to hold those things as high as you can up on the list while pushing opinion, speculation, personal convictions, things like that down on the list for the sake of unity within the spirit for the mission of God. And this is what you see throughout the scriptures. I mean, Paul is constantly talking about this, that we, that we maintain unity in the spirit, that we maintain right doctrine, that with the spirit of God uses us for unity. But he's also saying, hey, avoid divisive people. Avoid those silly arguments. Avoid that kind of stuff for the sake of the unity of the church and the brotherhood of the saints moving forward. So this is what we believe. You want to avoid compromising the faith without being unnecessarily divisive. Does that make sense, church? So you stand where you got to stand and you got to stand, but we don't fight over every little thing that's there. We want to make the main thing, the main thing. And we want to be going forward with the gospel, not trying to prove to everybody how right we are or how smart we are. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the model by which we've sort of done that and how we've sort of tried to operate. But now here's the thing. This is about us in here and how we make decisions regarding the faith in terms of interactions with other Christians or false Christians or whatever the case might be out there. This is not an excuse for us to go, therefore, this is the model that I will use to treat all unchristians. So because my next door neighbor doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and died for his sins, that's a die for for me. So I'll draw a line. I will separate from him and I'll have nothing to do with him anymore. This is how we decide what doctrine and teaching and practices come in here. This is not about how we operate with regards to people that are out there. And the reason I can say this with strong confidence is even because of the very next place this text even goes. So look what Jesus then says, starting in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Interesting side note here, taken up usually refers to um, being taken up in glory. So think like Elijah and the fiery chariot, you know, being taken up in glory. But in Jewish literature at that time, that phrase taken up actually spoke about death. So there's an interesting parallel that Jesus will be taken up in glory, but not in the way that people think he's going to do it. He's going to show himself glorious and amazing through the sacrificial death of the cross, which is why it also says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So at this point, Jesus now turns towards Jerusalem. He's turning towards the mission of what he's going to do. And everything's going to start funneling there. Now, before, remember, he's been bouncing around the Sea of Galilee. He's in this village. He's in this village. He's in a boat crossing to that village. There's a lot of that. That's over. And now it's all going to change. And he's going to start making his way towards Jerusalem. And he begins teaching his disciples with a very increased intensity about what it means to follow him, about what a disciple of Jesus Christ is actually supposed to do. Hence the text we're about to get into. So he's headed towards Jerusalem. But look at this one, verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him 
because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. That shouldn't be funny, but it kind of is at first notice. Lord, you want me to just burn them up? Like, I could totally do that for you if you'd like. It's so weird. But understand what's going on here. It's not quite as weird as it may seem initially. So he's in Samaria. And he's around these people called Samaritans. You've heard of the Good Samaritan. You've heard of all this. But most of us don't really realize how intense the hatred was between Samaritans and the Jewish people of the day. Because here's why. So that area used to be part of uh, the tribe of Ephraim, the half tribe of Manasseh. This was land given to a Jewish culture, to some of the Jewish tribes. But when the Assyrians came in and took the Jewish people captivity and took many of them off into um, slavery... There were several who stayed behind and the Assyrians then sent some of their own population to move down into this area of Syria and begin to populate that area that had once been Jewish territory. And so what happened was the Assyrians moved in and this remnant of Jewish people that were still there began to intermarry with those people there. And they adopted all of their practices, their cultural practices, they adopted their paganism, all of this stuff. So later, when the Jewish people were allowed to return to their land, they find this group of people here who had not only abandoned, and I mean, they looked at this as, as like a traitor, had abandoned their own country, but had intermarried and adopted the practices of the very people who had oppressed them. And so they looked at them as half-breeds, is what they refer to it. An intense, intense, not just racism, but straight-up hatred for one another because of this. And then other things even played in as well. <laughs> they, when Nehemiah came and was rebuilding the wall, it was Samaritan people who were actually opposing him at certain times. So uh, actually opposing Jerusalem being rebuilt, that's Samaritans. And at one point, the Samaritans had a problem with lions. I mean, literally lions, big cats were ravaging the Sumerian land. You look it up. It's an interesting story. And they viewed this as judgment, uh, God's judgment on them. And so they brought in a Jewish priest to come in and teach them how to worship God the right Jewish way. But what they did is they took the Jewish practices, but they still kept all the pagan practices they had before. And it became this sort of meld of religion. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans, hated them. And the Samaritans, in return, hated the Jewish people. And I, there's really not a cultural equivalent for us right now. I mean, I guess maybe you would say something like the Taliban after 9-11 or, or something to that degree. But even then, because of the level of betrayal and stuff that happened, it doesn't even come close to the type of hatred that's here. So as Jesus is coming through and he sends people in, go get us a place to stay, go do you know, whatever they're going to go do. And they're being asked, so who are you guys from? Where are you going? Where are you going? Uh, we're headed to Jerusalem. Nope. The inn is closed. We're all full. Sorry. Don't have a place for you. And they're rejecting him left and right. So the apostles are like, all right, let's burn them. But there, there was some precedence for that. Because Elijah, for example, if we go back to Kings once again, Elijah once called down fire from heaven on the enemies of God. And even honestly, like that's kind of what we all understand, right? Rejection of Jesus, the judgment of God comes as fire. And so they think they're doing the right thing. They're like, Jesus, these people, they are traitors to our nation. 
They have been traitors of this land. They are pagans. They are worshiping in terrible ways. And now they're rejecting you when you're coming through here? Let's burn them. And it says that Jesus rebuked them. But this isn't just like, just rebuke. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. That word rebuked there is intense. It usually refers to how Jesus spoke to demons when he was casting demons out of people. That's how he spoke to his guys. In other words, they're going, let's call down fire. We'll do this. Let's call down fire. And Jesus is going, no, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. No. That's what he's saying to them. Why so intense? I mean, they're not worthy of favor yet. Why so intense? Because number one, he's headed to Jerusalem, the text just said, right? To do what? He's going to die. Jesus is showing that the advancement of the kingdom of God will not happen through violence or force or any of that. That the mission of God and the spread of the kingdom of God will come through love, will come through grace, will come through sacrifice, will come through humility, will come from a willingness to bend a knee to those that are in sin, not a we'll just wipe everybody out that doesn't agree with us. And the second thing is, is because he's going to die for the Samaritans too. He loves them even though they reject him. He absolutely loves them even though they reject him. And church, can I just say, if he operated the James and John way, do you have any idea how much trouble we would be in? If he burned up everyone that ever rejected him, no one would be left. Take a look at Romans chapter 5. We have it on the slide here. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were, what's that word? Enemies. Say it louder. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do you understand what that's saying? See, we tend to do the John kind of thing. We've been saved and we're in and everyone else is out. And so they don't deserve, but we start to fool ourselves into thinking that we actually deserve things. Listen, this is what happened to Israel. They received the grace of God. God tells them, look, I didn't pick you because you were powerful. I didn't pick you because you were more than anyone else. I picked you just to show my grace. I picked you because you were small, not because there was anything about you that was worthy. That's why I picked you. So that you might then be the missionary nation to the rest of the world. But what happened? They went from, we've received God's favor to, we are God's favorites. And they stopped reaching out to anyone else that was around them. And suddenly it was them, and then the world was their enemy. And to do that, church, is to forget the gospel. 
Because the gospel is that we are no different than the Samaritan. We have rejected God. We have sinned against God. We have rebelled against God. But it wasn't our worth that made God act on our behalf. It was his goodness and mercy that caused him to act on our behalf. He showed us grace while we were yet sinners, literally his enemies. He showed us grace. Aren't that can't believe that can get an amen, John. That should have, because you're all breathless that you just, it's hitting you again, right? Amen. But listen, then why do we look at so many people outside the church as our enemy? We do this. We look at those that are outside as enemies. We focus on everything they're trying to do to us as a church to prevent us from being the church, when in reality, we're the ones that are supposed to be going to them with the saving message of the gospel in the first place. I love what Art Azurdia said about this. He's a professor up at Western. He spoke just last week at the, uh, uh, the conference that I was at. He said this, the church has got to learn to think of those outside the church, not as our enemy, but as victims of the enemy and realize that God has ordained us, the church, as their mechanism for rescue. They're not our enemy. They need our help. That's the reality of it. And so how do we help? The mechanism of Jesus Christ is through humility, through love, through service, through grace, through bending a knee, even to the people that you are absolutely certain don't deserve it. Church, we got to do better at this. You know, most of the world looks at us as being divisive. Most of the world looks at us as being the people that say we're in, you're out, and just pointing fingers at them all the time. Most of the world does not view the church as a mechanism of grace in their community or in the world around them in any way whatsoever. But that is exactly what God designed the church to be. To carry the gospel of Jesus Christ that can save people and to serve people in the same manner in which Jesus came to serve us. And he went to the end of his life to do that for them. So we have to do this. So who's your enemy? Who's the one that you are certain does not deserve the grace of God? The one that makes your blood boil. Whatever it is. Whether it's a political enemy. Whether it's a religious enemy. Whether it's a, a co-worker you just can't stand. No matter what it is, the person that makes your blood boil, that our nature wants to go, that guy, uh uh-uh, he's out. I wish I could call down fire on that dude right now because I totally would. But we go, that's actually, Jesus wants to save that guy. So how can I push my rights and my pride and my hatred, my sinful, wicked hatred aside And model Jesus Christ to that person, even as they act as my enemy. When you start going that route, man, you are following the Jesus model of discipleship. We've got to understand that. We've got to quit trying to be right about everything. Quit trying to win everything and start winning people instead of arguments. Winning people instead of territory. And Jesus is rebuking firmly the disciples who think that those victories are won through force or through power. They're won through humility. They're won through service. They're won through a bent knee, not a knee to the gut. And this is what God has called us to do. Amen, church? But here's the thing. 
that's kind of lame. Right? I mean, honestly, in our own human nature, we just like, surely you don't mean that guy or those people or whatever the case may be. And I know for me, historically, my kind of default reaction to that is to find ways to justify why I'm not the person to reach out to that guy or why they don't deserve it from me. But, oh, I'll pray for him that somebody else will come, even though God made me the vessel of sanctification in someone else's life. But I'll, I'll just find ways around this. But here's the reality, and this leads into the last part of the text, the part that it says about me. We don't have the freedom to negotiate the terms of what it looks like to follow Jesus with Jesus. That's so hard, but please hear that. We have not been given the privilege, the power, or the right to negotiate with God and say, I know what you're saying, but here's the way it really ought to be. Look at the next text. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, easier said than done, right? He should ask Peter how that's going to go a little bit later, because Peter's going to be the one that says, I will never abandon you, Jesus. Even though everybody's going to leave, I will never abandon you. And then this thing with a rooster happens, and he gets made a fool of. But this guy comes to Jesus, says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, what we're about to see here, are three different examples of people who are going to attempt to negotiate the terms of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we'll see his reaction to this in three really important areas. The first one, this candidate says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, look, you're going to follow me? Okay, well, understand this. Even foxes, even birds have a place of shelter where they can go to and have warmth and have security and have a place of their own, but not me. The son of man, we are, I'm a, I'm a vagabond here. I am, I am, I'm a pilgrim in a land that is not my own. You want to follow me? You think it's leading you towards kingdom and riches and wealth and prosperity, any of those kind of things. The only thing I can promise you is difficulty. Then comes the second candidate. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And this one's, whew. This is family here. I'll follow you, but I need to go bury my father. Now, many people actually believe that it can't be that this guy's father is dead yet. Because even the importance of funerals and things like that in the Jewish culture, if his, if his father's dead, but also not yet buried, there's no way he left that behind to go have communication with Jesus anywhere. He would have been there dealing with that, or that would have been scorn even in the society at that time. So most people believe his father's either like really old, maybe disease, maybe he is dying, whatever the case may be. And he's saying, so Jesus, listen, I will totally follow you. I do have, I need to take care of my dad. I need to do this for, so I have a couple of things going on, but I will come back. I'm going to follow you again really, really soon. And this is considered, verse 60 here is considered one of the hardest sayings that Jesus made anywhere in the Bible. He says, oh, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. Then there's the third candidate. He says, in verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. 
And Jesus looked to him, said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He says, look, nobody, you don't follow me at a more convenient time. That's, that's not how this works. Remember, this is coming right off of the teaching of the parable of the sower, where he actually says, he speaks about the seed that landed among the thorns. And remember what he said? That the concerns, cares, and wealth and comfort of the world will choke out that seed that's been planted. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Listen, following me is not about, man, Jesus, I am so going to follow you as soon as this happens and I get this taken care of. I'm going to get a couple of things, get my business to a certain level and get a, you know, kids in high school now, but they'll be out of the house soon. I hope when that happens, like we'll have that all worked out. And then I am in Jesus is like, uh-uh, that seed will get choked out and that day will never come. That's not how this works. Now, these are hard. Let the dead bury their dead. Come on, Jesus. I thought you were pro family. Honor mother and father. What about all that stuff? What are you talking about here, Jesus? I want you to notice something. These, thing, these exchanges bring up or highlight an element of three different things that are super important. We have property, no place to rest my head. We have family, the idea of the burial. And then we have work, this idea of hand to the plow and taking care of the family back home. Somebody's vocation, his business, and all this kind of stuff. So it's property, family, and work. Now keep that in mind. I want you to look at this. For the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn there. But look at the text here in Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 16, it says, But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. There's property. And I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And the other said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. This is what he would work his land with. And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. It's family. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I think that's harder than the dead bury their dead verse, just my opinion. What is he saying here? Is he saying that to be a Christian, we should hate our wives? Absolutely not. The scriptures teach us how to honor and love and serve our wives to a greater degree than anything that's ever been written before. But I want you to think about the three areas here. These are really important areas, right? Property, your home, work, your vocation, and then your family, your children, your wife, your spouses, your parents. These are super important. These are probably the three most ultimate obligations in all of life that you will ever see. And therein lies the danger. Because they're good things and they're important things. But if they become ultimate things, 
they become our gods and not Jesus. And he is calling us to follow him. Again, the parable of the sower, be careful that the thorns, the cares and concerns of the world will choke out the faith. What good does it do if a man prosper and gains the whole world but lose his soul? What good does it do if you took care of your family but they never found Jesus because you weren't leading them anywhere? What good does it do that you built a business and an empire and a kingdom and it all burned when the fiery judgment of God actually did eventually come? What's the point of any of that stuff if you don't have Jesus? So he's not being a jerk. He's not being a prideful, egotistical me first the way we probably would be. He is instead going, trust me, you'll miss this. You'll get so consumed with these things and all the worries of this world. I know how this works. I know how this operates. And then Satan's going to come and he's going to whisper, you're doing a good thing. Don't worry about that. And it's going to fuel that fire and that seed of faith that I'm trying to plant in you. That is the most valuable thing you will ever come across in this world. You will lose it. Don't do this. We don't negotiate with Jesus. We need to trust Jesus. And the reality of it is this. He's always calling us to joy and peace. We just don't believe him. It's the honest truth. We believe usually that following him means it's going to cause so much difficulty in so many different areas that we need to get life under control so that following Jesus fits. Instead of understanding, you can't, these are two different kingdoms. These aren't going to just fit. This is about trusting Jesus, understanding who he is, believing in his call, trusting that he is good and he wants good for you and following and realizing that maybe he understands how all this works better than we do. And this is just the truth. But here's the beauty of it. Jesus is not a dictator in heaven that's just moving chess pieces around and say, do this, do this, do this. What he's teaching them right now is what he's doing. He left his throne. He left his home in heaven and he left his heavenly father. He came here to get his knees dirty and bloody for us when we did not deserve it. He went to the cross where he carried the weight and shame and guilt of all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame. And he poured his blood out on our benefit, not 10% of his blood, not 50% of his blood, not even 75% of his blood, as amazing as that would be. He poured everything out for you when you did not deserve it, when you were enemies with him. And then he says, now follow me. And I assure you, he is worthy. He does deserve it, and he is good. This is what he's calling us to do. And church, this discipleship stuff is going to keep coming up. It's going to keep coming up. It's going to keep coming up as we're going through the rest of the book of Luke. And Jesus is going to teach this stuff with increasingly intentionality. He's going to continue. He's going to keep getting more and more intense about it because the heat's going to start getting turned up more and more and more. And then when the crucifixion crucifixion happens, it's really going to be intense. And he's trying to prepare them. Guys, don't let all this other stuff going around cause you to look away from the one thing in life that's more important than anything else you'll ever come across. Don't miss this. So church, don't miss this. Don't. Don't 
Let's not be the ones who made excuses and then had our invitation annulled. Oh, that would never happen to me. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be right back. Church, I have seen so many people throughout the years. I could name names right now of people that would sit front row taking notes like crazy. And then it was soccer season. And then it was this. And then it was this. And then it was this. And I'd run into them all over the place. I'll be right back as soon as. I'll be right back as soon as. And a couple of weeks turned to months, turned to years, turned to not following Jesus on any level whatsoever. It is not as hard as you think, and it is not impossible for you to. So trust him. How can we trust him? Because he laid down his life for us first. It is the love of God that compels us to follow the God who loved us. But he's good, and he's wise, and he knows what he's talking about. Amen, church? All right, let's stand and pray. Help us with this, Lord. I don't think that any of us would be telling the truth if we didn't say there's parts inside us that when we hear some of these sorts of things, we just push against. And Lord, as I said before, my um, normal way of operating is to try to find ways to justify not having to change or to find ways how this isn't talking about me, or this doesn't apply to this particular situation. God, will you protect me from idolatry that's crafting a God that's more palatable for me to follow? Help us, Lord, to trust you more, to serve you more, to follow you more, to love our enemies more, to not just say it in word and then never do anything about it, but to show Christ-like love, incarnational love that goes out into the world and brings the grace and mercy of Jesus. Help us to be more like you is what we're praying. This is what discipleship is, Lord. Make us, please, more like you. May this not be another sermon, another religious exercise, but God, may your spirit do something crazy right now with those who would, who would join me in this prayer. Lord, may your spirit take over. We can't do this apart from your Holy Spirit. But Lord, with your Holy Spirit leading us, we could make a massive difference in the world around us. We could be the kind of church that if we didn't exist anymore, the Rogue Valley would mourn. So Lord, may we do that, not that heritage receive glory, but that you do. May your name be lifted on high and may you use your people to do it. May you protect us from pride, protect us from division, and lead us in love. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you this week. Have a great week.